0: You can fly. You can see through walls. You don't like the view out of window? Switch it to the Caribbean.
1: They now have the potential to get us out of a cycle of rolling lockdowns and social distancing.
2: Two years ago, we had our first day without coal power. We made the headlines and people pass over the fact that this year we went through the better part of a month.
3: What an intriguing, eclectic trio of comments. And I'll give you a prize if you can already guess what links them. Ahead of the summer break, we're trying something different for this episode of Rich Pickings. You're going to hear three of Fidelity's analysts pitch their current investment convictions. The analysts are sector specialists who don't just devour company balance sheets to find companies worth investing in, but meet the bosses, talk to suppliers and suss out competitors. We'll hear them pitch the trends that are heading for the big time. And to quiz them, we've got two portfolio managers, one who's an expert interrogator in these things, and another who's trained to see the bigger market picture. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Fidelity International's Rich Pickings, the asset allocation podcast. Well, joining me from her home some way west of London is Charlotte Harrington, a portfolio manager in the multi-asset team, and in our London studio, Aditya Koala, a portfolio manager with a focus on US equities. Welcome to you both. Hi, Richard. Richard. Now, things are returning to some sort of normality in the UK. Are you both managing a normal summer holiday this year, Charlotte?
4: I have to say, I haven't planned to go away this year. I suppose I might do something last minute, but I imagine it will be um, not a million miles away from where I am now.
3: Go for a nice walk, maybe. Um, Aditya, what about you? Are you getting away?
5: Um, I'm planning to, and I'm going to be a bit adventurous. So, I'm keeping my fingers crossed to see if amber goes to green, hopefully.
3: Where where exactly, then? Where are you heading? Uh, Somewhere close to the sea, I hope. Okay. Well, hopefully, you'll get close enough to um, roll your trousers up and wade in as well. Okay. On to to the, the order of business today, and we're going to talk about markets and the old adage of Uh, sell in May and go away, that wouldn't have served you particularly well this year. Um, How are you approaching the next four or five weeks as lots of other people also go on holiday and markets tend to quieten down? So, um, Aditya, how do you prepare for that?
5: Um, You don't actually, because uh, we are long-term investors. We can't close our books like hedge funds, go to cash and then come back after a month and sort of restart our books. Um, we just let it run, and hopefully things will not be super bad or good either way.
3: Do you have to keep your mobile switched on? Hopefully, once a day. Once a day, that'll do. And Charlotte, what about you? Um, how do you deal with this this period?
4: No change, really. Um, I think you know you just carry on carrying on doing the job. I think there are some seasonal considerations in terms of how markets can behave during during these periods, but in terms of changes to the portfolio, uh, or sort of down risking or anything like that, just because of the time of year doesn't doesn't really happen. And you know, everything that we're doing is quite liquid. So
3: Uh, steady as we go. Right. Well, before we hear from our analysts, we're going to look at how Fidelity is positioned across the markets. Earlier, I spoke to the Global Chief Investment Officer of Fidelity, Andrew McCaffrey. And here's a short clip of that conversation. Well, hello, Andrew. Um, Let's start with Fidelity's core asset allocation, where it is at the moment. Have there been any changes?
6: Nothing significant at this stage, uh, Richard, that um, still a bias to be uh, slightly risk on, um, reflected through uh, being slightly overweight in equities. A little bit of movement there. There's been a profile we've seen some of the success of campaigns around Europe to uh, uh, roll out vaccinations, to open up the economies a little bit more that... um, Feel that there's a bit more momentum around uh, uh, both the the earnings profile that will come from that, and certain sectors, but also the broader economic um, uh, front being encouraging. But you know, generally, just maintaining that uh, equities um, overweight position. But starting to just take back some of the the duration as well, so going uh, uh, slightly more underweight there to to fund some of the the risk profile,
3: but overall, not dramatic change. Risk on, um, that that sounds like a a glass half full position. If I take the glass half empty position, there's an awful lot going on in the world. Covid is far from over. In fact, we're seeing things go backwards in a lot of countries where there had been a recovery. Um, We've got disruption from weather disasters um, in many places around the world, in Europe, as we Record this, and we've had um, problems in North America as well. Why the glass half full view?
6: So, I think the the key thing is still the sort of dynamics as we move to a how do we cope with and um, open up uh, you know, economies as the vaccination roll has occurred, but also that an element that the stimulus does continue, um, and that although we've seen uh, you know some of the concerns around uh, inflation, especially that the interesting part about that is that it's still very much perceived to be transitory in nature. So the markets are looking through the current data and looking, in some ways, interestingly enough, um, you know towards whether uh, actually that there's enough. Stored up from the consumption side as well, that will be released as we uh, go through slightly greater opening up economies and also more of the sort of global activity uh, shows. And and on that, it's interesting to see that China having very strong export numbers. Um, uh, you know, again, only in the last few days that you know just showing that there is still that sort of demand that could f- could flow through and that will keep the general environment of of earnings um, running and that policy will stay very accommodative.
3: So a pretty optimistic global chief investment officer, Andrew McCaffrey, uh, explaining there why Fidelity continues to favor risk on bias in its core allocation. Uh, We recorded that about uh, a week or so ago, and you can hear the full interview with Andrew on the Rich Pickings channel. Now, uh, Aditya, what what do you make of that? Are you a sanguine?
5: Um, Broadly, yes. I think um, obviously it is our job to worry and there are obviously clouds on the horizon. But uh, if you look at money supply, it's still very strong. We still have QE going around globally. Earnings are very strong. So if you sort of add them, maybe valuations are expensive, and I'm sure Charlotte will um, explain that um, further. But overall, if you just look at fundamentals, uh, things are actually starting to be very, very strong. And unless we believe that we'll have a growth scare or a growth crash next year, I relatively remain sort of optimistic.
3: So Charlotte, there you are, Aditi set you up. Are you happy with valuations?
4: We're always trying to look at valuations versus what, what we think is going on with with fundamentals and, and not one in sort of isolation of the other. More sort of medium term, uh, that sort of, Positive outlook on growth is is kind of supported by high savings with within the consumers in particular. So there's there's plenty of savings to be run down, especially in places like the US, even the UK, and 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 then in Europe. Um, On a sort of more short term basis, we do seem to have priced in a lot of good news, um, and we are looking at policy uh, that is inclined to remove some of the extraordinary support we've had as a result of COVID. So. I think on a, on a sort of a tactical short term basis, there's reasons to not have very large overweight positions in, in, in kind of risk assets, particularly equities. But again, that kind of medium term framework of still high savings rates, a services sector that has still got some room to improve from here is, is broadly supportive of that kind of longer term view.
3: Right. Well, that's the broad market picture. And now to our analysts who are going to take us right to the heart of three sectors. I'm going to ask each to pitch the most exciting idea in their area for Charlotte and Aditya to consider. Now, before we get started, um, Aditya, how similar is this process to how you would normally interact with the analysts?
5: I think it's uh, broadly the same process because what we are doing is dealing with the analyst on a regular basis and every analyst will pitch their ideas and themes to us. What we are doing is a very condensed version of the same thing.
3: It's a very efficient version of what you're doing normally. Yes. <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps, <laughs> okay. yes. Charlotte, um, it, it is, however, slightly different um, to what you do because the, you, you tend to take more of a top-down view than um, a bottom-up view uh, in multi-asset. Is that right?
4: Yeah, so I guess, you know, we're very um, global tactical asset allocation focused and, and therefore quite focused on the macro data and the kind of um, aggregation of responses from a wide set of um, businesses and consumers. Um, but where we do interact with the analysts is on some of the kind of joining up of the micro to the macro. And sometimes there's extra information to be learned from the bottom up to help our understanding and also a sort of confirmation and backing up some of the data uh, that we're seeing and occasionally even sort of front running that.
3: Excellent. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's get to it then. So, first of all, welcome to Johnny Tseng. Now, Johnny is a senior equity analyst uh, at Fidelity, specialising in semiconductors and technology. Hello, Johnny. Hello. Hello there. Are you ready to go? I am ready to go. Yes. Okay, Johnny. I've got my stopwatch at the ready, um, and I'd, we'd all like to hear your most exciting idea, please. And you've got two minutes, and your time starts
0: now. So I'm excited about the metaverse. So so during first, second, third lockdown, I can't remember, most of my exercise was actually boxing and playing table tennis in virtual reality. I had my headset on and it was actually a really good experience. And it's plugged into me, tweaked into me the fact that VR, AR, virtual reality, putting yourself into a different world from your headset is something which has been talked about a while and it's finally being a reality. Um, what we have is the metaverse, which is a virtual, shared, 3D persistent world. You know, three things are making the metaverse happen now. One, we have these persistent worlds that, you know, you have World of Warcraft, you have Minecraft, you have Fortnite, real virtual worlds where you will go and people go today, interact and build with their friends. Secondly, we've got a range of fantastic low-cost workable headsets, Facebook's Oculus Rift, uh, Microsoft HoloLens, and you know, Apple are almost certainly going to be launching a, their own headset in the next one or two years. So the hardware is finally ready. And third, I think COVID is making us more suited and ready to, you know, live virtually. You know, we would like to be back in the office. You know, we'd like to be in real life. But for many people, you know, being there in the flesh is not the default way of living. And maybe some of us prefer to kind of live a bit more remotely. And the metaverse, the shared virtual world, is simply the next iteration of that. And when you're in the metaverse, in the virtual world, you have superpowers, You can fly, you can see through walls. You don't like the view out of the window? Switch it to the Caribbean. You want to be at the Olympics? You can teleport into the stadium and see the events live in the flesh. You want to be at the Wembley to see England lose on penalties? You can be there, all from your sofa. And that's what's going to be happening in the next five years, the metaverse.
3: The metaverse with 10 seconds remaining. Thank you very much indeed. So there we are, metaverse, virtual exercise. Was this uh, a a flash in the pan during lockdown or is this the new reality? Um, Aditya, what, what do you think?
5: I think it will be fascinating if this happens. I mean, it reminds me of the movie Minority Report where Tom Cruise goes back home and switches his background to whatever he feels like. Um, I guess the big question then is, do the gaming companies benefit from it? How should we think about where to invest? And what happens to live action movies and live action shows? Like, if everybody can do this from home and watch a football game, like a Champions League final or a Euro final.
0: So, so it's this race between, you know, who's going to own the platform and who's going to own the content. And you can see... The guys who own the existing platforms so social and mobile are trying to dominate in the new world. So, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was very clear when Oculus bought Facebook VR five years ago, I missed out owning the mobile platform, I want to own the virtual platform. And Apple has been spending billions and billions of dollars trying to build their own headsets and own their own platform. So the incumbents there. But then you have, you know, upstarts, so, you know, guys who don't have the hardware, but have the software. Fortnite, owned by Epic Games, Roblox, which is a $40 billion company, which allows people to build virtual worlds. And, you know, you have this kind of fight coming up between the existing guys who have installed base and the new guys who have the killer tools software and the content. And there's going to be an enormous fight to one who's going to own the platform and, and whether the platform will be open or closed. You know, Apple and Tim Cook and want it to be closed, um, Fortnite and Tim Sweeney want it to be open and be available on every platform, Android, iOS, PC, Chromebook. Um, So that's kind of the, the, the kind of big fight. Who's going to own the platform? Will it be the old school? Will it be the new guys?
3: Does that answer your question, Aditya?
0: It does and does not because
5: we don't know what's going to happen. But I guess the other issue is, do we need terabit links to get that kind of data through the system? And are we even prepared for it? I remember, you know, in 2002, we we were using dial-up and we said we're going to watch movies on our PCs and and on our TVs, uh, real time. And it took 15 years to get there. So I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to watch a virtual reality, real life system, how long will the infrastructure need to sort of pick it up?
0: Absolutely, yes. And you know, the the, the kind of dirty secret of tech is that a lot of tech architectures and industry is driven by, you know, the ability of kind of the the, the connectivity into the pipes to service the end user. When the pipes are thin and constrained, the compute has to be close to the end user, and PCs become really powerful. When pipes are fat and unconstrained, the computer lives in the data center, and guys like Google or Facebook become really powerful. And you know, the pipe here needs to be 5G, it needs to be, you know, always on, you know, always available wherever you are, high speed and low latency, and latency is important. Um, so, you know, one of the key enabling technologies is going to be the build out of 5G, which is certainly, you know, it's happening very rapidly in China. The US is catching up and Europe is finally getting there.
3: Okay, let me bring Charlotte in. Let me bring Charlotte in quickly. Um, how does this strike you?
4: I guess two two things that maybe spring to mind in terms of um, questions. One, I think you've sort of touched upon is how much does this kind of eat into the, the big stocks, which are such a large component of the index. And we look at the S&P and we all look at very high valuations, certainly on a relative basis and and probably absolute. Um, so, so, you know, the potential for quite meaningful index level implications, should there be a big shift away from the sort of the, the fashionable fangs towards this sort of thing. And then the second one which I'd be really interested to hear your perspective on is just this ongoing um regulatory uh, pressure on the technology sector at large around the data, and we see this sort of playing out in China. How does the virtual world fit into that? Is it really going to be sort of under that same level of scrutiny?
0: In terms of the leaders, yes, I think that, you know, at the moment there's kind of the big guys, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, you know, one of them's not going to make it. Maybe two of them aren't going to make it. What we see is that every time there's a big shift in computing platforms, you know, one of the big guys, be they Nokia or IBM or DEC, you know, they fall by the wayside. So some of the big guys will fail against the against the upstarts, and there'll be someone new which is a 200 billion, 1 trillion market economy, which will take its place in the index. So, so your second question around regulation, um, yes, you know, this is gonna weaponize regulation because when we have this virtual shared world that's going to be relying on real-time, you know, human data. Um, and the regulators is going to be very careful about who controls this data. And it's going to come back to the point that, you know, is this going to be a closed system where some tech faceless giant controls all the data? Or is it going to be more open where data is shared, data is free, and there isn't the same ownership and threat over the data? And, you know, regulator is going to be important in making that framework for, you know, that open system to to, to become a reality.
3: So more questions, but I'm afraid we're out of time and we're going to have to move on. Johnny, that was excellent though Thank you very much indeed. Uh, now we're going to Emma Newey now Emma is an, a healthcare analyst so very firmly rooted in the real world, and of course the um, the events of the past year and a half. So, hello, Emma. Welcome to you.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, so, I'm when thinking about the most exciting thing that's going on in my sector right now. I think the obvious one is the one that's actually impacting all of our lives, and hopefully for the better soon. And that's COVID vaccines. And given they now have the potential to get us out of a cycle of rolling lockdowns and social distancing and hopefully get our lives back a bit more to normal. The fact that these companies have managed to develop a vaccine, a number of vaccines actually in less than a year, is a huge achievement and something a lot of people were sceptical of um, a year ago. So traditionally, vaccines have taken 10 to 15 years to develop And even then, efficacy has been mixed with some failures. And even the flu vaccine that people take every year, the efficacy is often um, between 20 and 50%. Yet these vaccines, even though they were developed only in a year, um, have shown excellent efficacy. Um, So Pfizer and Moderna and Novavax have all shown greater than 90% efficacy against the original variants. Um, manufacturing has also often presented a huge bottleneck for vaccines and been a real problem um, for scaling them up and you know getting them spread across the world. Whereas, because the COVID vaccines have used new technologies, they've actually already been manufactured at scale. And so, even as we're hitting the rapidly you know rising Delta variant, because of the scale that they've been able to give out, at vaccines are already showing signs of helping that situation. It's also a huge advantage that a number of different technologies have worked for the vaccines. So we've got mRNA, adenoviruses, subunit proteins, and that means that we're well placed to adapt as the virus evolves and immunity from the vaccine fades, and so prepare for most likely booster market. One thing that is amazing is that an mRNA vaccine can be developed in 90 days. So we
3: don't have 90 days, Emma. So <laughs> hit us with your. You're a little bit over time. So hit us with your your punchline.
1: So uh, yeah, so in, in general for pharma, you know, it's got a reputation for being slow, but they've now managed to develop something very quickly, change the world as a result. And also now can hopefully use these technologies in, you know, other infectious diseases for better vaccines, but also in other. Um, non-infectious disease areas like cancer and immunology.
3: Fantastic. Almost on the button of three minutes, which is Sorry. too long, but <laughs> it, was, it was all interesting. So we don't mind. Thank you very much, Emma. Um, so basically, all that focus and investment on vaccines over the past year and a half, has it been a shot in the arm for the pharma industry that will last or will it all fade away? Um, Aditya, let me come come to you. Um, what uh, what struck you as you heard that? Would you invest if you're not already? So
5: I guess, first, I agree with Emma that this is an unbelievable achievement to get a vaccine from start to finish within a year. And I think I'm super excited by the technology for further vaccines and treatment options. I guess the question is, do you invest in the gold diggers or do you invest in Levi's jeans? And I always believe that you always buy the picks and shovels. So I am interested in the technology or the companies which will provide the technology to all these pharma companies for this mRNA gold rush, if I can say this word.
3: I like it. Emma, how do you respond?
1: I mean, it, it always is good for those kind of companies any increase in capacity of manufacturing scale always is beneficial and it's a much less risky um, the way that drug pricing works however is that you know cogs are only 10 percent of a drug price um, so if you actually really believe in a certain company being able to win and get lots of sales you will be best picking that Obviously, there have been a bit of unusual share price movements in that um, if you look at the amount of market cap that Moderna has been given and BioNTech versus Pfizer, there's been a lot of discrepancy in the way that the, the investors have awarded the stocks. But, you know, if you want the ultimate full dollar, that's the best way is probably to go for the one that will actually sell the drug.
3: What do you think, Aditya? Quick response. So I think
5: you can and you have to find the next Moderna. I think it's, it's going to fundamentally reduce the amount of time we take to find new drugs, which is amazing for the whole chain. And I think it will be incredibly deflationary for the sector because the drug prices have been very high because it's taken so long to create new drugs. So if you can create things in a year, there is no reason for them to charge $10,000 per drug per year. And so I am actually interested in both sides, to be honest.
3: Interesting. It gets more and more complex. Let me bring Charlotte in again. I'm sorry, as we're racing through this, it's absolutely fascinating. But Charlotte, you know, COVID has completely upended um, the world over the past um, year and a half. What, what question might you put to um, Emma, thinking about the pharma sector?
4: So I'm really interested in the uh, U.S. healthcare sector as a block, as opposed to the the, the individual components. So we, we we take it as as the index weightings are, uh, and when I look at that sector. Um, you know, it's held up pretty well in uh, for one of the defensive sectors in a world in which we've had massive sort of reflation narrative and and a move towards cyclicals, although that's come off a bit of late. And I guess my question is there's you know there's a lot of positivity around the positives of the the development of vaccines the potential for boosters etc how do we weigh that
1: versus things like patent cliffs that are coming up um so I suppose thinking about the healthcare sector it's been hit in very different ways so obviously you've got companies that are doing vaccines that have had a huge profit boost but then you've also had companies that do elective surgeries and things like that are involved in that that have been massively hit in terms of looking about pharma and patent cliffs patent cliffs are essentially a large part of how pharma works U.S. farmer in particular has a big patent cliff coming in twenty twenty five to twenty thirty, um, which is kind of why it's even with Pfizer having had you know an extra twenty five billion guided of sales this year, it's derated to twelve times because people are concerned about the patent cliff, so you will always be concerned about the pattern cliff and you have to be positive about the innovation. And if anything, the COVID vaccine shows that you can be slightly more positive about the innovation than you maybe were a year ago.
3: Charlotte, briefly, does that put your mind at rest?
4: Yeah, no, so it definitely sounds like there's some already some discounting for that future event. If I may follow up with one other question, which is um, I have a, a slightly sciencey background and I think one thing that's come out of COVID is just when you invest in... Um, in science, the amazing things that can happen. And you talked about the normal length of time to create a vaccine versus what's happened this time. And it's just remarkable. To what extent do you think that, that that will continue and support that innovation? Because clearly the pandemic was the large driving force for that investment. Where do you see that going in the future?
1: I mean one tangible um thing that I think we'll see quite soon is a new flu vaccine. mRNA is perfectly set up to a flu vaccine and um, so I think we'll probably in the next two or three years maximum see an, an mRNA hopefully more effective flu vaccine. In terms of other areas you know they were assisted by the amount of hu- huge amount of Covid, the willingness of people to volunteer in trials, and that will obviously slow down if you're not so focused. I think it will speed up in that they've shown that they can, you know, go from tests to humans so quickly and safely. Um, I think then the trial stage will probably still be slightly slower and more like traditional. So I, I would expect it not to go down to a year like with the COVID vaccines, but hopefully moving to more efficient.
3: There's some good news. Thank you very much indeed, Emma, because um, now waiting in the wings has been Alex Lang. So hello, Alex. Um, Alex is a utilities analyst and um, used to cover industrials. So it's time now for your pitch, please. You've got two minutes and your time starts
2: now. So yeah, the the most exciting thing in my sector is the, is the renewable revolution that's, that's taking place, and particularly exciting in a sector that is not normally characterized as being exciting, even more slow moving than, than pharma. Um, but it is remarkable. And it's and it's an area that we should be very sort of, rightly proud of. And in, at a time when, you know, floods are happening in Germany, and we're questioning um, global warming with, with wildfires across Canada, you know, the one real success point has been the, the power sector. And renewables have been around for decades, you know, the first wind turbines were built in the 70s. But in the past 10 years, the change in the economic equation of renewables has been dramatic. So you go back 10 years, And solar, for example, the dollar per megawatt sort of cost was um, about a thousand dollars per megawatt hour. Um, You've recently had auctions in in sunny countries like Portugal and and Saudi Arabia at 10 euros, $10. And when your average European power prices are between 50 and 70 euros, the game has changed. The the battle has already won. And as much as people talk about, you know, regulation driving change or policy or government targets, it's an irrelevant point. I mean, nobody now economically has any sense of investing in, in thermal power and renewables are really dominating. And we've seen a complete collapse in the, in the carbon intensity of power generation as a result. I mean, you look at the UK, the Industrial Revolution, you know, which was started in this country. The first coal power station was built in 1885, I think. You, but you can go back further to James Watt, you know, the start of that century, 250 years of coal. And two years ago, we had our first day without coal power, made the headlines and people pass over the fact that this year, we went through the better part of a month. So um, the world has changed and the, and the power sector has completely changed. And it, it, you know, if we take that further, it expands into new technologies like hydrogen, um, which can power new changes. And um, yeah, I think it's a vastly exciting area for, for the sector.
3: Absolutely on the button of two minutes. Thank you, um, Alex. So the economics of power generation has changed and it seems it's changed for good in some countries anyway. Um, Charlotte, what what question might you have for um, for Alex? So
4: maybe maybe a couple of questions. Um, the first one is clearly this is an enormous growing area and hugely important on on many levels. How how do you think about the sort of valuation aspect of this and the fact that not every type of renewable is necessarily going to be the sort of the the long term answer? Um, and maybe just a second one from again a sort of economic standpoint around the speed of change, the speed with which we come off kind of traditional carbon energy sources. Um, you know, there's a huge polit- push politically from central banks, from um, politicians and so on and so forth to, to drive this through. But, you know, how how fast do you think it can realistically take place and are there any kind of risks along, along the way?
2: Yeah, well, I think those are two sort of critical questions. I mean, in answer to the first, it's interesting how the perception of technology changes. I mean, if you go back a few years, biomass was being touted as a great renewable product, which is effectively burning wood pellets. And now people are saying that's sort of greenwashing because it's not really renewable. It's putting out carbon. Yes, it's a bit less carbon, but it's not the, um, the sort of power you can get from wind and solar. And, and the economic side is equally interesting. Like, you know, you have companies having to invest, but are they ever going to necessarily generate returns on these investments? Um, and there are a lot of companies out there that are pricing in, you know, huge value creation from, the amount of capital they're going to put in the ground, which they will put in the ground. But technically, we don't know if what return they're going to make on that. You know, if you're basing your assumptions off that 50, 60, 70 euro power price, and actually the average does fall to 10, then uh, then yeah, well, go- there's going to be a few companies in trouble. Um, and to your second point, yeah, I think I think it is an interesting question in terms of what are the limiting factors for, for investment. I mean, governments are putting out very aggressive targets in some circumstances, and yet, we aren't always seeing the investment. So in Germany, for example, they've got, I think it's a 65% renewable target for 2030. And yet in the last 14 wind auctions, um, all but one have been undersubscribed. So you haven't had enough capacity coming online. And you have massive issues, particularly for onshore wind, you know, whether that be interconnection to the grid, um, land permitting, and then particularly NIMBYism, you know, you have huge um, local residential protests to to these structures being put in the ground. Those are bigger issues, I think, than the willingness to invest, because the appetite to put the capital there is is um, unquestionable.
3: Thanks, Alex. Um, Aditya, coming to you. Um, so it's not as easy as it looks, even if you want to. There are quite a few um, hurdles to, to overcome.
5: I mean, it always is. Nothing goes up in a straight line. Nothing goes down in a straight line. But I think what Alex is talking is a fundamental change in how we consume or create power. And I do believe electrification is here to stay for us. My bigger question is like the speed, actually, rather than the actual output. And I do think the bigger question is emerging markets because we know that uh, the US and Europe can basically spend and sort of get renewables. But I really am looking forward to China and India with 2.5 billion population starting to get into the electrification and the renewable path. And I think that will be an unbelievably fascinating exercise and outcome to go through because they will consume much more or they will create much more greenhouse gases than all of US and Europe combined pretty soon.
3: Should we put that to you, Alex? Um, Is that the area to be looking?
2: Yeah, these are very interesting markets. I mean, there's an odd dichotomy, I think, in some of them. For example, China you know, it has the largest investments in renewables in the world. And yet it's also one of the worst polluters on its coal front, because it's still building thermal coal, which, you know, we haven't we haven't built thermal coal in Europe for years. And I think particularly India, India has very, very sizable targets, but bureaucracy and land availability is really getting in the way of investments there. And yeah, it's a big question to, as to whether, you know, that's a market that can see the necessary investments in the near term.
3: Fabulous. Well, um, Alex, Thank you very much. And thank you also to Emma and uh, Johnny, our other two analysts. Um, Aditi and Charlotte, what's the most interesting nugget that you've heard from these three pitches as you've listened to them?
5: I think what is fascinating is the speed of innovation. The, the What actually stands out is the innovation cycle is getting hyper fast. So if you sort of t- take Emma's example, so you've gone from 15 years to one year in terms of creating a new class of vaccines. If you take Johnny's example, it took 15 years from, for us to go from a stupid dial-up to a broadband connection to watching Netflix. And he's talking in five years, we're going 3D and full virtual. And if you look at Alex's example, we are going from you know, testing whether solar works to actually solar being much cheaper than any other forms of energy. And so what we are sort of viewing is, is an innovation cycle, which is hypercharged, and I'm very excited about the next 10 years because these are extraordinary developments going forward.
3: I am too. So we've got the um, the, the speed of development um, that Aditi has picked up on. Um, Charlotte, what about you?
4: So I think lots of interesting things out of out of all of it. Um, to me the the newest is the virtual world uh, and not something that I have to say have given a huge amount of thought to. Um, but uh, certainly something that I will consider more going forward, and and obviously has has the potential to be be quite disruptive potentially in the future.
3: And in fact, that's one of the key aspects of this. When, when you hear analysts and um, when they're presenting what's going on in their industry and, you know, they're specialists in, um, in those particular sectors, hopefully off the back of that, um, you might change your allocations, probably want more for um, Aditya today. But has it changed how you might think about um, investing, Charlotte?
4: I think it's very, um, you know, it's very interesting to hear the, the bottom-up view on some of the, the risks around this stuff. Because when, when we look at sort of valuations in uh, certain parts particularly of the US market um, it's it's not always on a stock by stock basis very easy to see where there's already been some differentiation Uh, and so for instance in the example of Pfizer that's that's quite interesting to know that this is something that's very much being talked about in terms of the the patent cliffs Um, but from a sort of um, aggregate sector level I guess um, often the the top-down drivers will will generally um, will generally dominate.
3: Okay okay and Aditi what about you?
5: I mean, I think this is exactly what we do on a general basis. So if I take Alex's example, and if you think renewables, and we know renewables is going to be the future, then you have to seriously question the future of coal and even oil and gas on a long-term view. And then if you believe renewables is going to be the future, then you have to think, okay, what's the supply chain going to look like? Where are the investments going to be? So for example, I look at copper as a good byproduct of this thesis because electrification needs a lot of copper. And so if you're going to have full electrification and renewables, then we need to think if enough copper is being produced to sort of handle that. So you start to think more joined up on a different, different planes, start thinking about it. Just like Johnny said, if you're going to have virtual world, I need to have 5G. And what do we need to get to get to 5G to enable what he's talking about?
3: The second derivatives. You've got second to, you've got derivatives to, and the value yeah. chain and supply chain. And, and Charlotte, you want to come in a final comment?
4: Yeah, I think it's very interesting marrying up some of those structural trends with the, the kind of more tactical view. So to take the example of of copper, um, you know, there, there's clearly a, a kind of structural demand factor out there that's growing uh, in the form of electrification. But when we sit here today, we look at uh, a slowdown in China. Uh, and so trying to balance those two is something that, that we have to do and, and certainly tactically might make us deviate from that um, more structural view.
3: Great. Well, thank you all very much indeed. That was really, really interesting. Right. Well, after all that excitement, it's now time to play hotcakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake and what would you drop like a hot potato? Charlotte, you first. What's your hot cake?
4: So I quite like um, the the dollar paired uh, versus the Mexican peso here. Uh, and the reason for that is you know you've seen some some dollar strength really against um a, a wide variety of currencies including commodity currencies so canadian dollar um, Norwegian krona as well. But actually, the, some of these commodity-sensitive emerging market currencies haven't really moved. So, I think that sort of rotation into a long dollar position in places like Mexico, where you're seeing some, some weakness appearing in, in the China story, and the emerging market story, uh, is, is something that's quite attractive to me.
3: And your hot potato?
4: So, I'm particularly cautious about commodities and in particular oil here. Um, So, when you look at commodities, you've had a decent rolling over of uh, some of the more industrial sensitive commodities, but oil has not really come into play uh, in a particularly meaningful way. Uh, Whilst the supply demand dynamics at the moment look quite favourable... Um, and I think it is notable that that you are seeing in, increased um, output in, in in the US now. Admittedly, this has been quite stable for a while. Rig counts are coming up a bit. You've got a slowdown in China, and then just finally, on COVID, should we have a sort of a, a more restrictive policies on on COVID across the world? Then. The oil sector is is, is probably the, or the, the oil commodity, sorry, is probably the first to be hit by that. Uh, so, it's just a sort of a view on the sort of the asymmetry, if you like, of, of pricing from here.
3: Thank you, Charlotte. And Aditya, uh, what are your hot cakes? What do you really like at the moment?
4: So
5: I'm getting slightly more bulled up on the healthcare sector in US. So if you look at the overall sector, it's very cheap. The healthcare sector is getting retooled in US. Um, It's 17% of GDP, and I think they need to control it. So they need to move patients out of hospitals, into home health, into outside ambulatory services. They need to reduce the cost of care. And that is an incredible tailwind to a lot of different subsectors within this um, overall space. It's cheap on an absolute and relative basis.
3: And what's too hot to handle? What are your hot potatoes?
5: So I think the regulatory crackdown of Chinese internet companies and tech companies is a real problem for the, the tech sector specifically, and we haven't seen the last of it. And I am not sure how this will play out for the overall tech sector, the semiconductors and everything over the next few months and quarters. So I really am c- concerned about that.
3: Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. You can read more on all of the sectors our analysts have covered here today at fidelityinternational.com. And you can listen to more about Fidelity's research too. Our recent ESG analyst survey, which covers the latest trends in sustainable investing, is available on our Fidelity Answers channel. Just search for that title on your podcast app. Thank you so much to my guests, Charlotte Harrington, Aditya Koala, and to our analysts, Johnny Tseng, Emma Nui, and Alex Lane. The producer is Seb Morton Clark. The studio managers are Adam Shelwell, drake alex wilcox and canon blitz with production support from maddie fletcher from all of us at fidelity goodbye